You're listening to the Conversations with Kids Peace podcast. Advice, information, and inspiration from experts at the leading provider of mental and behavioral health services for children, adults, and those who love them. Now, here's your host. The Conversations with Kids Peace podcast is sponsored by Spyglass Solutions, a nationally recognized management consulting group with comprehensive experience in the challenges of the healthcare field. Learn more at spyglasssolutions.org slash conversations. Hello and welcome to our podcast series, Conversations with Kids Peace. I'm Bob Martin. We're continuing our commemoration of National Foster Care Awareness Month here in the month of May. And today on the podcast, We want to shine a light on a relatively new law that's having a major impact on planning for the future of foster care in America. And to help us understand that, we're very pleased to have a true leader in the behavioral health services field, Ken Olson. Ken is currently the executive director of Kids Peace New England and the national clinical director for Kids Peace's foster care and community programs. He joins us from his home in Maine. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Bob. It's great to be here. So let's dive right into this. Uh, The law is known as the Families First Prevention Services Act of 2018, and it's been described as perhaps the most extensive and important significant reform of federal child welfare policy in literally decades. So speaking in broad terms, um, why is it so important? Well, first, first, let me start by giving sort of a broad brush about what foster care is and, and, and how it works. Currently, there are something maybe a little bit shy of a half a million kids in foster care in the United States. Uh, virtually every state and territory is, repre- is represented with a foster care system of some sort. And, and what that means, it's important to remember, is that almost a half a million kids have been found by the courts to be at significant risk of abuse or neglect by their biological families. And so that places an awful lot of kids uh, into the the custody of the state. And until about the the mid 1970s, all the responsibility for foster care for all of those kids rested with the states. And in the mid 70s, the federal government decided that as a matter of public policy, we should support states' efforts to take care of these kids. And that's because different states were in different economic situations and could afford to do more or less with kids. And the the federal public policy became, no, we should level that playing field and and the federal government should play a role in helping support the financial cost of foster care in all the states. And so it started in the mid 70s. And then in 1980, there was a reform that created in the Social Securities Act, uh, something called Title IV-E. And that is really the primary program by which the feds function, functionally send money to states using formulas that are based on the economics of that state. But they support those kids who have come into foster care and who have come into foster care at a time when their families were poor. So it it mattered when the kid came into care for a state as to whether or not the child was coming from an impoverished family or from from a family with means. If it was from an impoverished family, the, the state could draw down money 
from the federal government. That was in 1980. And between 1980 and now, there have been almost no significant changes to that formula or to how, or to how that system functions. So to your question of why is it important now, this is a system of federal support for the state's foster care programs that has not been significantly adjusted since 1980. Think of all the changes that have happened in our world since 1980 and, and what that means. And so uh, to, to pass this act in 2018, it's a very long time, uh, very, very long time coming and we've learned a lot in child welfare in those ensuing decades. I mean, I mean, a change, a change doesn't, you know, changes don't happen for 40 years is, uh, is extraordinary, especially, as you say, given all of the changes that happen in the society. Um, I've, I've read some summaries of the bill. It, it indicates that it has basically two main thrusts. Now, one of them is foster care. The other is congregate care, which is um, group homes or residential treatment programs. We'll get to those in a minute. I just want to focus again on foster care. In your view, how will this law um, change foster care in the United States? Couple things to couple things to remember here. Those half a million kids that come into foster care, they are placed in a variety of different kinds of settings. Some of those kids go into foster homes. Some of those kids go into kinship homes. Some of those kids go into what you know you just identified as congregate care. And congregate care in my world seems to have this kind of two categories of that. One category being group homes where there's really not a lot of treatment per se, and then residential treatment facilities which do focus on kids' treatment needs. But let me answer your question about foster care and how it impacts foster care. The basic understanding here that I think that we've developed since 1980 is that the best place for a child to be is with their family. And that a family setting is by far the preferential place when kids can't be safe at home because of abuse and neglect. We want to find a family setting for them. And so it, there's a triage, you know, basically I think now we look to, to find maybe there's a kinship person, maybe there's a grandmother or a aunt and uncle who can take care of the kids safely. And failing that kids are placed in, in foster homes Failing that, kids are placed into congregate care or, or residential treatment. So in terms of how this impacts the foster care system, because there, because there are some carrots and sticks in the, in, the, uh, in the law that are fairly complex, states are really encouraged to try to keep kids in family settings, which means that there are sticks that will try to move kids out of congregate care and into foster care, increasing the need for foster family homes. But the other really significant part of this legislation is that for the first time, the first time states can draw down money before the child is actually taken custody of. So previous to now under 4E, the only way the states could draw down money would be if a child, once the child was actually in the custody of the state. And under FFPSA, which is, I apologize for using the, the, the acronym here. You'll hear me do that again and again. I'll apologize out front. Under FFPSA, states will be able to, to get a plan approved by the federal government that will allow them to pay for prevention services in addition to, uh, in addition to services when the kids are, are, are in care. And so if we think about it, the hope is that by paying by the state's 
having more money to pay for prevention services, there will be less of a need for foster care. And, and, and in so doing, that in a sense might reduce some of the need for foster care nationally if, if these prevention services are effective at, at you know, what, what they're purported to do. Um, but that's, that still sort of remains to be seen. It's, it's interesting because we always talk about foster care as having sort of the, 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 the desired outcome is always reunification with the biological family when it's safe, when it's appropriate. Um, and it sounds like what you're saying is that um, you mentioned the term carrots and sticks, but you're kind of also saying there's, there's a box to keep the carrots in, so to speak, in the sense of being able to fund the preventive services ahead of an issue that comes in. Is that because the bill even more clearly um, really has an emphasis on keeping the biological families together? That's correct. That's correct. The, the entire purpose of the bill is to recognize that what we haven't done in the intervening years since 1980 is really with public policy and money, support the kind of upfront services that many of these families really need. I, and I'll, I'll just throw an example at you. So if you have a teen mom with a baby who really has grown up in difficult circumstance herself, does she really have the, the background to know how to take care of that baby? In many cases, the answer to that, or in too many cases, the answer to that is no, she doesn't. And until FFPSA and the state's abilities to draw down some prevention services, you couldn't get any federal support for a program that went into that, went into that mom and helped teach her how to be, you know, how to take care of an infant. And so that infant was at risk of coming into the system. Once the kid was in the system, then you could actually provide support to the mom. Well, that's crazy. You know, you, you really want to be able to upfront that when the kid is still with, when the, when, when the babies are still with their parents. And that's true of older, of, of older kids too, that, that, you know, kids would come into care because their parents didn't know really how to take care of a child with attention deficit disorder. But, <clears throat> But after the kid was in care, you could have a program that taught the mom how to do that or the family how to do that. Under FFPSA, there will be services available that, that will be able to go into families. And the language in the bill, it's kind of funny, strange language. I always thought of these kids as being at risk of coming into foster care. They've abandoned that language now, and they're letting states call these kids candidates for foster care. And each state will have to come up with its own definition of what constitutes a candidate for care. And, and the states need to submit their plan, which includes that definition, back to the federal government for, uh, for approval. That would sound like something that would be um, good in the sense of if there is a stigma about going into foster care, that's a little bit of taking that away and just saying, this is someone who needs help, not someone who you know, deserves done anything. or something. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, I think that's exactly the intent of that change in, change in language. Well, now, now speaking of where the bill, you know, the bill may have a, a, a nicer tone one way, maybe not the other way. And I'm thinking that of, of congregate care. That's right. What I've read about it indicates, and I guess I would ask you, is it fair to say the bill does not favor this level of care and is trying to curtail its use? I, I, I would say that to say that it doesn't favor it is an understatement. It, it, almost, it almost penalizes congregate care. 
And, and the notion there, <clears throat> the notion there is, and, and here's what happens. Currently, for example, under uh, <clears throat> under Title IV, if a child is com comes into care and is placed in a group home, as long as that child is in that group home, the state can draw down from the federal government dollars to help pay for the placement in that group home. Going forward, the state will only be able to draw that down for a very limited period of time. And I forget the exact number, but it's like a couple of weeks is the only amount of time that they, that they can do that. And so in order for states to draw down the money for prevention, they're going to have to give up the money that they were getting for placing kids in congregate care settings. And, and here's where there is this, I think, important, important definitional thing, which is that, that the, the legislation recognizes that there are kids who are in foster care, in the foster care system, who need treatment that they need the specialized services that are provided by behavioral health organizations like Kids Peace and, and, and our colleagues in the field. <clears throat> and they're not saying that every one of those kids can be treated in foster care. And consequently, those kids can be treated in a residential, in, in, in a congregate care facility that provides treatment. Is that what they mean by the phrase qualified residential treatment programs? That is how they have defined it in the, in, the, in the rules. So a qualified residential treatment program needs to meet certain standards that involve the care and treatment of kids. And it's, this is one of those circumstances where there are differences between states in terms of how states are interpreting the, interpreting the law. It's a voluntary program. States don't have to do it, but they're obviously incentivized to do it. So using Maine for an example, Maine has decided that we will that we're going to engage. And so the state of Maine public agency has submitted a plan to the federal government for approval. In so doing, they have told our existing congregate care facilities, such as the one Kids Peace operates in Maine, that we will need to become qualified as a qualified residential treatment program in order to, in order for the state to continue to draw down funds from the feds, because unlike a group home, a QRTP, again, I go with the acronyms, a, a QRTP placement, the state can draw down federal money while, while the child is in that circumstance. In Pennsylvania, on the other hand, Pennsylvania has decided to not submit a plan. So even though in, in Pennsylvania, Kids Peace provides residential treatment programs with very compelling treatment services, we're not required to become a QRTP in Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania didn't basically chose not to go down that road, probably because there probably are in Pennsylvania a lot of kids that are in group care, congregate care, congregate care settings, unlike Kids Peace, that are not getting a lot of treatment in those places, but the state doesn't feel like they have a lot of alternatives. So they, they elected not to, not to go down that road. I mean, it's, it's, it, it sounds like the kind of thing where the ideal will be if the law takes effect and, and builds some of these other supports for families and then basically make sure that all those areas are, are taken care of and, then, and, and working well. And then the kids who need that additional uh, treatment, you know, then they would go to a congregate care. And perhaps at that point, states like Pennsylvania would 
get involved and, and, and be more uh, involved with it? They, they can choose to get involved later. And I think what I would expect that they will do is that, is that they will try to ramp up their foster care program so they won't have to make as much use of group homes. And then when they can, when they can serve those kids in, in foster care settings, you'll see, a, you'll see a slide in the number of kids that are in those, uh, that are in those group homes. And, and that will be the tipping point where I would say that, that Pennsylvania will probably end up putting in their own, uh, putting in their own plan because they can elect to do this at any point. You know, it's not, uh, it's, it's not something that is going to go away. Well, and, and, and that brings me my, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, in Maine, in Maine, it was, it was not a heavy lift here because in the state of Maine had, had virtually no kids that were in, that were in group homes. And the existing residential treatment programs here, including Kids Peace, it was not, it's not a terribly heavy lift for us to meet the requirements of the QRTP. There will, will be some changes. And frankly, we think some of the changes that they will require, assuming the state funds it, are gonna be good for programs. We will, for instance, as a, as a qualified residential treatment program, we will have to provide six months of aftercare services to all kids who discharge from our program. That's now not required of us. And we typically pass kids off to either other agencies or to our community services for that aftercare support. But I think there's a good argument for continuity of care to have the residential treatment program itself be providing some of that aftercare support so long as it's adequately funded. And, and uh, the state of Maine, at least, at least so far, they're saying that's what they're gonna do. We'll, you know, we'll see whether they put their money where their mouth is. Conversations with Kids Peace is sponsored by Spyglass Solutions at spyglasssolutions.org slash conversations. Spyglass offers evidence-based consulting services to help your healthcare organization become more efficient while delivering more positive outcomes for your stakeholders. Spyglass consultants bring hundreds of years of collective experience to bear on the questions you need answered in today's healthcare environment. To find out how they can help you, visit them at spyglasssolutions.org slash conversations. That's spyglasssolutions.org slash conversations. As we talk about this evolution, you know, we, it, it's important to note that we do have this uh, small uh, impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> the law comes into place in 2018, 2019, and then all of a sudden, boom. Um, has there been a delay in the implementation? And if so, when would people expect to see the impact of this sort of becoming obvious? The, uh, the, the, the federal government has said no delay. They're, they are on, you know, they are on track. But having said that, I also said that, you know, remember states can elect to do this. And, and so for, for Maine, for example, even though the law, even though the law was passed in February of 2018, Maine submitted its plan in January of this year, and they have and they've stated their intent to go live with implementation October 1st of this year. So I, I think, and I think there are something like 16 states by now that have already submitted plans. So there's a somewhat of a rolling timetable for this. If your state is in a position you really can't do it, you know, they can delay. Um, but generally, the, the federal government is encouraging states to move forward as, uh, you know, as expeditiously as possible. 
more to come on that. Yeah. Okay, we ask each of our guests to end their time with us on the podcast with a life hack. This could be a favorite saying, this could be a piece of advice, maybe something that just gets people through the day. So what's your life hack for us today? So uh, it's great, 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 great question. And it's, it's, uh, it's something that I learned. Uh, I, I started my career, Bob, as a therapeutic foster parent back, back in the seventies. And I've learned some really important lessons then that turn out to be, you know, one of these, like everything you needed to know, you learned in kindergarten moments. And, and one of the things that I learned in, in, as being a foster parent to troubled teens was that the kids needed two things. They needed somebody who really genuinely cared about them, whether they had had a good day or a bad day. And they needed that same person to make, to make the kids life predictable. And oftentimes the kids that are coming into foster care, they've missed one or both of those things. They were either in a home where they didn't get unconditional care or they were in a home where the parenting was really inconsistent. And so I just, that became my go-to in terms of working with those kids was like, am I genuinely caring for them whether they've had a good day or a bad day? And am I making their life predictable by creating you know, a family where they know what the rules are and they know what the consequences are and they know what's expected of them? Well, guess what that turns out to be? That turns out to be an exceptionally powerful management strategy. Think about the people that you work with. Think about the jobs that you've had. Think about the bosses that you've had. If they genuinely cared about you, and if they genuinely were clear about their expectations of what, you, what they wanted from you, isn't that who you want to work for? So that's my hack. I love it. I love it. You know, as you were saying that, it occurred to me something I remember somebody talking about baseball and they're talking about baseball umpires and they said, we don't care if the strike zone is up here or down here. We just want it to be in the same place. We just, and and, and I, I was thinking too about how, you know, we talk about traumatic events that kids see in their lives, which often lead to the, to the issues that we're, that we're dealing with in our programs. And a lot of them do come into just there. It's, it's, you know, Chaos is replacing consistency. So I think that's true. And, and obviously, I think we're all that way. Like we just want the boss to, to be the same today. I don't have to worry about him coming in. That is awesome. I tell people, I, I share that with staff sometimes. I say, look, th this, is what I, this is what I try to do. And, 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 and I can tell you this in a way that I'm trying to manipulate you. I'm trying to get you to stick around. And if I genuinely succeed at that, if I genuinely succeed at communicating to you that I genuinely care about you as a person and I make your job predictable, I say, you will stay in this job longer than you should. <laughs> and and let's, under, let, let's be clear, that's a good thing. It's, it, it, it has worked well for me so far. <laughs> Ken Olson is a currently executive director of Kids Peace New England and national clinical director of Kids Peace Foster Care Community Programs. I use the term currently because I want to make note of the fact Ken is going to be completing his service and retiring at the end of May 2021. And uh, Ken, um, I think I speak for everyone at Kids Peace and the thousands of kids that we treat and the thousands we've treated in the last, last uh, decades. Thank you so much for everything that you've done for them and for us. Uh, we wish you a very happy retirement. Um, and we know that you'll continue to be involved in this field uh, and, and, 
and uh, the kind of advocacy you've done. And uh, we would love to have you come back on the on the podcast with us. But I have promised that I would give you the summer off. You can enjoy that retirement. So thank you <laughs> well, thank again. You. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words. It's, it's really been incredible. It's it's simple to say it's an honor that the people that I've had the the chance to work with at Kids Peace in my time here and the mission driven of mission driven approach to their work that they've taken has uh, been really an inspiration for me. And, and, and I feel like uh, a lot of mixed feelings about uh, uh, about turning the tie in, but uh, but I'm ready. Okay, well, again, best of luck and thank you for everything. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us. I'm Bob Martin. We hope to have you join us again for more conversations with Kids Peace. Until then, take care.